Yo, it is wonderful for Laura and us to be with you. Um, greetings from Crossway. We think about you often. We pray for you. Um, and Laura and I had the privilege of being with Christopher and Stephanie last night and just hearing all the ways that God is at work here in your church, by, by God's kind providence, you're in this situation where you're growing. A lot of you are new and being integrated into the life of the church, and here's what God has for us today as we look towards His Word. We're going to ask this question. What implications do Jesus' death and resurrection have on your life as a community? And particularly, your love for one another. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then verses 7 through 11. We're going to explore these things together. What a gift to open up God's Word. Peter writes in four verses following, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see the implications of your death and resurrection and the beauty of Christian community. God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word that we might be changed and believe your word and go live out your word. In your name, amen. 
When I was 12 years old, the Panthers came to town. I'm the Panthers fan. Our mantra that we came up with in 2004 is keep pounding. It's an awesome mantra. And particularly for us as a team, I say us because I'm a fan, but the Panthers as a team, it was very personal. Because Sam Mills, who played for the Panthers as a veteran and then began to coach during his coaching year, the last year that he was with the Panthers coaching, he came down with cancer. And in the midst of chemo, in the midst of his battle for cancer, he came alongside many on the team. And there was this one locker room speech where he coined the phrase, keep pounding. And because of his example to the team, not only did that team in that year take on that mantra, it became the mantra of the Carolina Panthers. And so when you show up for games, we all say it together. One side says, keep the other pounding. If you don't like your the Panthers, doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But man, if you're a fan, that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It is awesome to hear that. What comes to mind when I read this passage is that mantra. But not keep pounding, keep loving. Keep loving. In a way, First Peter is a locker room speech to the church. It's a church that faced persecution. Peter was a veteran disciple. He followed Jesus for a long time at this point. And all throughout the letter, he connects their identity to their new life in Christ. He talks about the heaven that is to come, but over and over and over again, he calls to them to keep loving. To keep loving Jesus in chapter 1, in chapters 2 and 3, to keep loving neighbor through service and good deeds and evangelism. At the end of chapter 3, he calls to them to do that even in the face of persecution. But then in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another. And the big idea for today is this, that our new life in Jesus frees us to love one another at a great expense to ourselves. That's Peter's point in this passage, and we will dig into that. Our new life in Jesus frees us to love one another at an expense to ourselves, And he encourages us that in light of the resurrection and heaven, it is our joy and privilege to do so. So three points 
from this passage, you have new life in Jesus. Heaven is close, so keep loving. Point number one, you have new life in Jesus. At our campus back home, there is a prominent statue. It's a statue of the self-made man, 15 feet tall, made out of bronze, this Guy, head down, hammer in hand, chisel in hand, is creating himself. It's a speech, in a sense, to every incoming freshman that what makes life good and worth living is you. You're your magnum opus. And what will lead to joy is self-dependence, self-definition, and self-expression. It's actually a striking commentary, not even just on our culture, but humanity itself. That's a fundamental flaw. We're not created. We create us. But secondly, what's so striking is that the statue is in a field by itself. As if to say, though others might be around, they are on the periphery at best. Because of our sin and our natural self-absorption, not only are we put at odds with God, but our sin disintegrates humanity from one another. But Peter's point is Jesus gives us a way outside ourselves. The gospel overhauls us from people that live selfishly, verse 3, at the expense of others, to people that live selflessly, loving others at an expense to themselves verse 8 and 9. And Peter begins to make this argument in verse 1, saying, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter isn't referring to Christ's suffering in general here. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but Particularly, Peter is highlighting Christ's suffering for us on the cross. He is, in my form, repeating 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So through his death and resurrection, verse 1, Christ not only reconciles us with God, but he is reforming us with a new love and a new desire and a new heart to love neighbor, which means, brothers and sisters, since you are united to Christ by faith, Sin and self no longer have 
dominion over you. Rather, you have new life in Jesus to live for the will of God, to love and value what God loves and values, namely in this, this passage, his image bearers. And not only that, you've been freed to love them like Jesus did. In the pattern that Jesus loved them. And we got to step back for a minute because I, I think it's so easy to read a passage like this and rightfully apply it to our own lives. But there's a cosmic reversal going on here that I, I want us to think about. Think about this. In Jesus... God is taking self-absorbed people and freeing them to love one another. He is creating humanity 2.0 in Jesus, where 1.0 is inward and closes in on self. In Christ, humanity is freed to image God by giving up ourselves to others so in the church this new humanity God is reintegrating humanity rolling back the effects of sin and self what this means is Jesus didn't die for us to just be a little nicer a bit more humble he died to change the trajectory of our lives from one captivated inwardly on self to one that's willing to pursue and serve others at the expense of us, our own comfort, our own agenda. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I mean... What must have been seared in Peter's mind in chapters 3 and 4 is the Last Supper, right? When Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, laid it aside, took literally the form of a servant, and washed his feet. And went on to wash the feet of all the other disciples, including Judas, who would betray him. And then, P and then Jesus says to Peter and all the disciples, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Jesus' death wasn't just the means by which we can love each other. It's the pattern. He died to his own desires for our good. And we're free to do the same. 
to give our life for the good of others, friend, Christian. Do you know that's what you've been remade for? That's your new purpose. And that you will never be happy in this life if you buck up against your new purpose that God gave you. But man, if you're like me, it's so easy to hedge. <laughs> I want to live for myself most of the time and try to live for others some of the time, maybe, right? Because our sinful flesh is at war within its blood. Peter knows that. He knows we're tempted to hedge on the life that God has called us to. So he gives us a vision of heaven. Point number two, heaven is close. I love verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Heaven is so close. If you're like me, when you read a passage like that, maybe you think, man, the apostles were great at writing scripture, not so good at math. Because it's been 2,000 years and they talk about heaven as if it's right there, but we've all been waiting. Peter's making a somewhat different point. He's saying heaven is close in that the final state of things can be seen and is breaking into the here and now in the church. And through the church, in this church, and through this church, we're in the last stage of redemption. We're on the trajectory to the final destination, the final act of redemption, Jesus returning, God with his people, everything made new, creation redeemed. That's what is next. And though we might wait many more years for it, the reality of it breaks into the here and now. And that reality should captivate us and be the lens through which we see church life. Let's work that out a minute. Asking you to consider this. What comes to mind when you think about heaven? Certainly for these Christians who face persecution in verses 5 and 6, and they look forward to the final judgment when they would be vindicated for following Jesus, and rightfully so. If you like me, man, I, I just look forward to no sin, the fickleness of my heart, like, I don't want to have to deal with anymore, to battle with my old self, to be fully renewed in the image of Jesus, that would be awesome, and y'all, it will be, we sung about that, that rocks, but I think many of us stop there. 
Because I think in our individualistic Western culture, we think of the renewed humanity in individualistic terms. But heaven is going to be full of people. And you've been renewed now in Jesus to serve and love people, both now, but for all eternity. Foot washing won't stop in heaven. And your new life frees you for a life of eternity of serving others. And before you balk at that, which I'm tempted to, you'll love it. <laughs> that would be thrilling to you. It's an unbelievable thing because... What ultimately keeps us from loving people is never what's in them, but always what's in us. And with sin gone, you will be able to perfectly image God by loving your neighbor. You'll use all that you are for they're good. You will never have a proud heart towards them. You will never desire to hoard what God's given you to self-protect or self-exalt. You want a pride or bitterness or comparison. That'll be wonderful. And the church is all of that breaking into the present by the power of the Spirit, it's a foretaste, a down payment of eternity itself. In a sense, the church is a place where we practice heaven until we get there. Right? It's that eternal view breaking into the here and now. And what Peter is about to go on to say is, Keep living that out. Keep walking that out. Keep practicing it. Keep loving. In verse 7, he calls us to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. He, he's basically saying, have this view of heaven that changes how you think, how you live, how you use your life, and how you pray. Friends, when you pray for the church, are your categories not just the needs of the church, but God, you freed us to love each other, change our hearts, soften my heart towards that brother or sister that I'm bitter with. God, help me move towards them. Jesus, as you have moved towards me. See, when we have this view of heaven, it shapes how we live, how we come in on a Sunday morning, when we show up at community groups, when we're just hanging out, we've been free to love. So let's get after it. Let's keep doing it. It's an amazing thing. This is why he says, keep loving one another earnestly. And I think what 
I see in these verses 8 through 11 is a lot of things that we're called to do. We'll get through those. But I want to draw your attention to the fact it's God at work in us that drives our work, right? And we'll see that over and over again. Keep loving one another earnestly. Look at the word keep. (laughs) I love that. Peter is acknowledging you're already loving one another. Just keep doing that. Man, as Laura and I talked to you, Christopher and Stephanie, it's so obvious that you're a church that empowered by God's Spirit is loving one another. But this word keep also has this connotation that we never arrive at being a loving church. We didn't just do that back in 22. And we're moving on to evangelism now. Right? And maybe we'll talk about our spiritual gifts in 2025. That's our strategic plan. It's like, no, always keep loving. Why? Because people are constantly changing. People are constantly coming in. This is why love towards one another needs to be a priority that we never lay down and we keep relearning how to love one another, even people that you think you know really well. You need to always be relearning how to love them in a way that points them to Jesus. The second word that stands out is earnestly. It just means constantly. It should be right there in our thoughts. It should be in our conversations. When you end up talking about how you could care for a brother or sister, our constant thought should be, how do we partner together to love them well, to keep loving, to do that constantly. And y'all, that takes practice. A lot of it. We get to practice heaven now, but man, if you like me and think about loving people, I, it's, it seems more like a tennis match, but our lives in community isn't like a tennis match. Tennis is kind of that weird sport that you don't play with anybody that isn't as good as you, right? How good are you at tennis? I'm a five. I'm a nine, so we'll get to it later. You don't say, I'm good at loving this person is not, so we'll just kind of shelf that for a couple of years till they grow up and mature, right? It's not how this works. It's not loving people is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. It's more like soccer, right? It's sure you have players that are good, but the success of a team is how they work together. Each player must find their place in the whole. 
right? And by the way, it's a lot more like my boys' soccer team than Argentina. We're not that good at it, right? Best of intentions, subpar outcomes, most of the time. But there needs to be this humility that the joy is not the outcome. The joy, this side of heaven is practicing and going towards each other and integrating with one another. Peter talks about the fact that our love should cover a multitude of sin, meaning that the church, this side of heaven, will always be a messy place. We're a mess, but we're his mess, and that's what matters. But the more we're on the field, the more we learn how to love and how to specifically love the names and faces of the people in our church, the more glory it brings to God and the more joy it brings to us because we'll be living in the good of the gospel. And Peter points out three ways in the last three verses. Some application for y'all. A couple categories. Forgiveness, hospitality, and serving. And as I go through these, I'd really encourage you just take one of them away and pray through it. Evaluate it. First, Practice forgiveness. Verse 8, love covers a multitude of sin. That the church should be a place of grace-filled restoration. But it's a messy place. But forgiveness is the means through which that's covered. Not overlooked. Not ignored, not covered up. The gospel frees us to be honest about sin, but it also frees us to forgive and move beyond so that we could do what God has called us to. See, as the church, we are no different than the world in the ways that we could err and sin one another against one another and harm one another. The church is no safe place from the sinful flesh. Heaven is. But we're not there yet. What makes the church different is that forgiveness and grace can be offered. The church, unlike the world, is a place where we're freed from self, where we don't have to demand that other people pay what we feel like they owe us. Our new life in Christ frees us from that. We no longer have to demand that people atone for their sins against us because we have a Savior that atones for sin. Let me be clear, sometimes when forgiveness is extended, there's a place where justice needs to take place and wrongs need to be 
righted. We're not talking about covering up sin. We're talking about the gospel freeing us to have this ecosystem and this culture where we're eager to forgive. We're eager to overlook, and heaven helps us with that. Because if you're harboring unforgiveness and bitterness, do you know that for all eternity, you will not have those same thoughts toward your brothers and sisters that you do now. <laughs> They'll live in the good of their forgiveness in Christ alongside of you. And that vision of the future frees us to forgive one another now, to practice graciousness. Verse 9, hospitality. Really appropriate for y'all, particularly as your church is growing. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we live in Southern culture. Southern hospitality is a thing. But that's different than biblical hospitality. Southern hospitality can be a desire to entertain, to prove yourself, right? To just have people over and welcome them into an awesome house with an awesome meal. We want to be generous. But the gospel frees us to more than just that. Not just opening up our homes, but opening up our lives. Which is part of why we have to forgive because if we know other sinners and they know us in a deeper way, guess what's going to come out? Sin. But guess what? God's covering that over with His grace. So I think particularly in a church like yours where new people are coming in and new relationships are being met, God has for you a new faith for just welcoming people into your life that you haven't even known, but who two or three years from now could be the people that God uses to shape you, to send you on mission, and it's that self-giving away from comfort towards taking risk relationally that, man, God's going to bless as we move in love and pursue one another. Third category, serving. 10 and 11, as each receives a gift, use it to serve one another. Again, I love this because Paul, Peter is saying, serve, 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 but he's really saying, God provides that, God provides that, God provides that. In a way that thrills our soul, we should walk in the power and strength of what God is doing through us for the people around us. The primary actor here highlighted is God himself as each receives a gift, God's grace oracles from God, strength that God provides that should draw our attention to God's the, the source. 
of everything that happens in our community. He didn't just free us from self, destined us for heaven, and leave us alone to figure out community and how we think it should go. No, he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit as each received a gift. And he talks about God's varied grace. If I sat down and had coffee with three or four of you, it will become very obvious that God has made you new in Jesus and giving you gifts to serve his body, and that's varied. It's providential, right? And the point isn't you just find out how to serve in a way that's fulfilling for you. Do you know by the Holy Spirit you now have gifts to serve needs and meet needs in this church specifically? You know how we know that? Because you're here at this church specifically. And God's the great shepherd. And there's a providential arrangement of not only his body, but the very means of grace he gives us to build up that body. There's the two main categories of gifts, speaking gifts, that he talks about. It could be Sunday through teaching and preaching or on the ministry mic or through prayer. It could also just be speaking Christ to one another, the gift of counseling and drawing out a heart. But the point, the point is that's God's Word that he gives to us to speak to one another that the body may be built up. The second gifts are serving gifts, administration, hospitality, mercy, and generosity, that as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we grow together as the body, the body is not only built up spiritually, but practically helped so that we could go out and love neighbor. And he's given many of y'all a vision for those specific things that I'm hoping and praying in the coming year will be more clear to y'all. You got to just integrate in the new communal life that God obviously and providentially is doing here. See, the health of the church is dependent on the willingness of the members to acknowledge God's providential arrangement and to integrate in the body to serve those around them. God's so kind. Listen, God has given Risen Hope Church through His Spirit everything you all need to flourish. Everything you all need for your neighbors to be loved and cared for and pointed to Jesus. 
It may not be the specific gifts that you want to be in the church, <laughs> but it's the specific gifts he is giving you because he knows what you need. And as we take a step forward in serving, we're going to see God work just in miraculous ways that we never expected or dreamed of. And the gospel frees you to move away from self, away from comfort, to use your time, your gifts, your abilities for the upbuilding of the body, forgiveness, hospitality, serving. What does it look like for you to eagerly and earnestly keep loving others in this community, in those areas? Finally, he ends 1 Peter 4, 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Church, as you move towards each other at an expense to yourself, it proves that Christ is real, that he's really lived and died and rose, that he really gives people new life. That's how a lost and dying world knows that we're his disciples. It's by our love for one another, spirit-empowered love. That's what God's doing here. You have new life in Jesus. Heaven is close. Friends, keep loving one another. And the power of that new life will be on full display in Summerville, North Carolina, so that others might join and know that, and know the thrill of no longer living for themselves, but for love towards their fellow image bearers, the love that they were made for, the purpose that they were created for, reconciled with God, reintegrated into humanity. God's at work, friends. Keep loving. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. God, that you freed us from a life of self-absorption. God, to a full, rich life. Jesus, your life in service towards others. We praise you for that. I pray that you would bless this church just with power through your spirit and faith to walk out this next year or two with a lot of growth and love towards one another.